A lot of row crops can be grown on thousands of acres with relatively few employees. Well, that's not the case in specialty crops, where labor costs are still sky high and the problems vary from one crop to the next. If you have like a combine harvester that replaces, you know, dozens and dozens of people and you have one person driving it and it's mechanized. And so that intuition, I think, doesn't actually work very well in this case. We want really small, low cost machines and lots of them. Hunter Jay and his team at Ripe Robotics are taking this low cost, customer centric, quick iteration approach to solving the labor challenge of fruit picking. We're really like almost brutal about keeping the, the costs of the machines down and iterating on them as quickly as we can uh, for as low cost as, as we can and still solve the, the problem of, of fruit picking. Hunter says the big hurdle to building farm robots is no longer the artificial intelligence. AI is really, really advanced now. It doesn't take a long time for us to, to get it fine-tuned on, on our data to, to find the fruit and assess it. The really hard thing is, especially the hardware that gets the fruit off the tree without damaging it, has been, has been pretty tricky. What it takes to build effective, low-cost farm robots with Hunter J of Ripe Robotics on today's Future of Agriculture podcast. Well, hello, fellow ag nerds. Thanks so much for joining me for another episode of the Future of Agriculture. My name is Tim Hamrich, and every week you and I get to talk to the farmers, founders, innovators, and investors shaping the future of the ag industry. Today's episode, and really every episode this quarter, is made possible thanks to the support of our quarterly presenting sponsor, which is Sound Agriculture. You just heard from Adam and Travis at SoundAg a few weeks ago, and it's really a great time to talk about their source product because just about everywhere you look, fertilizer prices are high, and in some cases, availability itself is a real problem. So finding a better source for crop nutrients going forward, I know is on top of a lot of people's minds. Well, believe it or not, that nutrient source might just be your soil. Source from Sound Agriculture unlocks more of the nutrients already in your fields so you can apply less fertilizer while getting the yield you're counting on. Source is a foliar-applied biochemistry that activates soil microbes to unlock more nitrogen and more phosphorus. It works with the soil you've already got and the equipment you already use to wake up the soil, sort of like caffeine for microbes, if you will. Visit sound.ag to learn more. That's just sound.ag. And make sure you stay tuned to the last part of today's episode where you're going to hear directly from farmer Jesse Pella, who's been using Source on his farm in Nebraska. Around here, the beans were like BBs just because we just didn't have any moisture late. My dad took uh, one load into a local elevator here. The guys were in line and they were all commenting about how our beans look normal because everybody's was just BBs. And the only difference was, is we put the source in compared to everybody else, and we had the actual normal-looking beans. Jesse's very open about the results he's seeing with the product, so make sure you listen to that segment as well. Thank you once again to Sound Agriculture for supporting the Future of Agriculture podcast. All right, now back to today's episode with Hunter J, CEO and co-founder of Ripe Robotics, a startup that's working on autonomous harvesting of fruit, like apples. Their prototype is in small-scale commercial trials currently and will be ready to scale up in 2023 and 2024. The company has two commercial trial partners and another 30 companies already on its wait list who spend a combined $85 million on picking annually. 
Most of you have probably heard about robotic apple picking startups in the past, some of which are still going strong today and others of which have failed. But one thing I really appreciate about today's story is Ripe's commitment to keeping costs extremely low and iterating extremely fast. I think this is what it's going to take to find automation that really works for the many specialty crops like apples. Hunter is a software engineer and has a particular focus on artificial intelligence. He previously founded a mobile gaming startup, and where I asked him about this company is where I'll drop you into today's conversation with Hunter J of Ripe Robotics. Oh yeah, yeah, sure. So that was a little, uh, a little first go at a, as a startup when I was in uni. I built this mobile game, and it, it did okay, but it didn't end up taking off that much. We got up to ten thousand users, and then sort of petered off from there. Ten thousand's a lot. It's okay. It's okay. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a bunch of lessons from that though, because I was like, okay, I'm interested in the technical side of things, and we built the game, and it was a reasonable, like it was okay game. Uh, and then we put it out there, and then it became like a marketing and optimization problem, like how to get people to spend more money in game, which like feels terrible to work on, how to advertise to it, dealing with like, you know, users, you know, it became more of a, you know, a, a marketing style problem rather than engineering style problem. Um, and I wasn't very good at that. So it eventually sort of petered off and we, we weren't able to, to scale it up. So when I was looking at the next company to do, that was one of the heuristics that I was using for, okay, if this company fails, I, I'd like it to fail because we failed to build the technology rather than because we built something exactly that we wanted and then people, you know, not enough people wanted it. Only 10,000 people wanted it. Whereas with uh, fruit picking robots, we can chat with three or four growers that spend tens of millions on, on fruit picking and that then you know there's a market there and you only need to convince a few people for the first couple of years until you're really starting to scale up. But the hard part is actually building the thing to pick fruit autonomously. So that was one among many heuristics when I was looking for the next... Uh, the next problem to try and solve and the next work to do. Yeah. What other thought process kind of led you to starting Ripe Robotics? Oh, sure. So there was lots of, uh, lots of things. Um, we did this big, big search about like lots of different possible companies. So one was an uh, engineering problem rather than a marketing problem. A uh, problem where it's going to get easier over time as just the world's technology improves. So fruit picking had been limited by AI, but that didn't seem to be the case anymore when we we're starting the company in 2019, and certainly isn't, isn't the case now. Uh, robotics is getting easier to build, internet's getting better on farms, sensors and that are getting cheaper, AI is getting way better and can do way more now than it could three or five or definitely 10 years ago. Other things that, that, that sort of helped, something where it makes sense given my background and experience, which was in software and AI and some startup experience, something where there's a benefit to doing it in Australia and New Zealand rather than uh, being in Silicon Valley or in London. Like a lot of tech things would be easy to do over there. But agriculture is one where we've got a bit of a benefit here. We've got the highest costs for labor here and very high tech farms. So it's actually, oh, we can turn that disadvantage of being away from the tech industry and working on tech into an advantage of, hey, it's, it's agriculture. Other thing that's a bit like that is mining. Then it's something where we're looking for some way, okay, if we can start super narrow, like small markets, super narrow, just pick apples off trees, which is, is a pretty small thing, but then has big opportunities to expand. You can expand to other fruit types. You can expand to doing data analysis. You can do off-season tasks like counting flowers and fruitlets, uh, thinning the flowers and fruitlets if you change the end effector on the machine, pruning, spraying, like uh, mowing, all sorts of things that sort of leads to starting with the highest value and one of the easier things to do. Then you, you use that starting point and all the data you get from that and all the 
practice you get from that to sort of expand into lots of lots of other stuff. And there's a thing where it was pretty open. There weren't a lot of people working on it. There's a few other startups and a few university projects, but there's no big company that's trying it. And it doesn't look like there would be a big company that's trying it. There's many opportunities in, in automation. So places like Amazon or Google or Tesla or, or everywhere, they've got so many automation problems to, to work on and solve that are much closer to home for them. I think there was a very small chance that any big company would, would pivot or put a bunch of money into agricultural robotics because they do warehouse robotics, they do delivery robots, they do factory robots before they get into all the way out to agriculture. So it was a fairly safe starting point where even if it took us a couple of years, we could become a big player in this space before uh, competitors switched across to it. And there was demand, like people were begging for these robots and the big companies were, were, igno- were maybe ignoring them as wrong, but weren't actually putting a lot of time and effort into it. Uh, but people like when we first uh, started, we were doing a call around trying to work out what the problems are, what, what work should we do? We caught up, you know, random grower from the, from the yellow pages and like, yeah, shit, we really, really want this. Then they introduced us to like a dozen other growers in the Department of Primary Industry. And then they took us on a tour around like all the orchards down in, down in Batlow and Orange. And then we went down to, to Shepparton as well. And then across to New Zealand. And like, we were no one at that point. We're just like, hey, I'm thinking of building a robot to try and pick fruit. Yeah, shit. All right, come out. We'll show you everything. They had no idea who I was or what my background was. or we had no money. It was like, yeah, these guys really want, <laughs> they really want fruit picking robots to happen. So that, that was good as well. We could see that they're. Uh, there, were, there were customers there who would be a little bit forgiving when the earlier versions don't work particularly well. And that was before you had a, a prototype of any any sort? Yeah, yeah, that was before we had anything. Basically just had an idea, a drawing. It wasn't even a digital uh, CAD model. It was just like, oh, yeah, I reckon we could sketch it out like this. And then we're just asking questions like, hey, how do you get it off the tree? What are the problems? How much does it cost? All of that sort of stuff. And, you know, then we decided to, to really get into and start the company. Yeah. So then what was the next step? You know, obviously you see the market need, you see the market need not being met, even though there's a few projects here and there working on it, but it wasn't like you were coming in at the ninth inning. So what was the next step then? I mean, we didn't do particularly well at the start. I made some mistakes here. First thing we tried to do after, okay, it's a problem is trying to look for a little bit of money to put into it. We just went ahead and built the first, uh, first robot, which, you know, it was a really bad machine. It was a, uh, and we had, we had no money at this point. Like the total budget of the company was about $5,000. I was in debt. You know, we had no, no money going into it. We built this machine out of shelving units from the hardware store. Attached to shelving a particular way, you know, at a bit of a, an angle like that, like a, an A-frame. And then built a little thing that rolled up and down the side with a chain and a motor at the bottom. So it could go up and down and then in and out like a uh, Cartesian robot, up, down, in, out. And a little, little webcam at the end of that. And then we got to work programming it so that if you held up an apple, the arm would turn and lift and go in and tap the apple. And you could, you know, walk around and hold it at different positions and it would still turn and, and tap, turn and tap. And uh, that, was, that was the first, uh, the first prototype, the first demo unit. Before building that, we thought maybe we could just buy arms off the shelf and program them, which would make a lot of sense because my background's in, in software rather than in hardware development. So we did a bit of a look around and tried to see, can we buy something? Can we buy a platform, buy an arm, put them together, program it to pick fruit? Turns out they're all ridiculously expensive. They were like $50,000 or something to get each arm and then they didn't have the reach we needed. I think I've gone a little bit, little bit cheaper then, but we had like $5,000 to, to get to the next step. They also weren't very optimized for, for fruit picking the existing arms. Mainly they're designed for indoor stuff and they uh, focus on precision rather than speed because we don't need a lot of precision if we're, we're off the fruit a little bit. Yeah, so we ended up building that arm, uh, building the, the model so it could tap and, and pick fruit. 
we ended up uh, getting into a university incubator uh, program where they gave us another $5,000, which like was great. They doubled our, our company budget to get into uh, this program. And they gave us a little office, which made us look super professional. And then on the back of that, we we're able to, to raise our first little bit of money, which was uh, uh, 70,000 Australian from some angel investors who we took to the office. And I'm like, oh yeah, these guys are legit. They're working out of a university office. And then we took them to see the robot. And you know, it was just in a dinghy sort of someone's garage. But uh, yeah, I could see, you know, hold up an apple, it moves up, it, it taps it. And we had a little mechanism by that point to, to pick it like a little tube and you turn a vacuum on and you, it sucks the fruit out of people's hand. It wasn't attached to the arm, but they could, they could get the idea. So that, that demo was enough to get to the next step there. That's cool. And so um, at that point, then you, you've got a little bit of money. You've got the office space. Uh, was, it, was it two of you at that point? Yeah, yeah. So it was myself and uh, my co-founder, Leo. When we got into the incubator program, I went full time and Leo was still working part time and putting money into the business. And then we, even after we got the 70,000, I stayed full time and we had runway for, well, we planned, we'll build the next machine, uh, which will be attach that tube to the rest of the frame, put it on a car trailer or something, take it out to the field and actually use the machine to pick fruit. And that would be the, the, the next step where we'd use that to raise a bunch more money. We thought, yeah, we could do that in maybe, maybe six months or, or whatever. So it, it took a year and a half to really get something okay there. Uh, we, we did build the next design of the machine, which was better than the one that was in the shed. Uh, it was attached to a trailer and we put the tube on it and we, and we took it out to the field, but it uh, did not work very well. It had trouble finding the fruit on the tree, uh, particularly depth-wise. The stuff when we'd been holding up the apple worked really well, but it was indoors and it was one apple. And I guess we we're a little bit forgiving with it because we, you know, in hindsight, I'm thinking, okay, so it's moving towards the apple. I'm like, hey, yeah, it's got it. Hey, yeah, it's got it. Whereas when we're by the tree, it goes towards it and then stops and doesn't get close enough, or it goes too far and bangs into the tree and the uh, uh, and and the branches and the wires, uh, which wasn't a problem we noticed when we're doing that first holding up the apple step. We also it took a little while to do it, so we only caught the very end of the uh, the apple season. We had to go into oranges, and oranges did not work very well. They're much fatter trees, much harder to get off the tree. They hang onto the tree with a lot more a lot more force. The tube system, which did so well in getting it when we're inside the shed, holding it, feel like it pulls it out of your hand with a lot of force. When you do that on the tree, ended up not working super well. We had to beef it up and make it more powerful. And we spent a little while trying, mucking around trying to develop something to get the oranges off the tree, which didn't end up working. So anyway, I mucked around for, for a while with that. And the first, this is robot number two, wasn't, wasn't good enough to raise money off. But we managed to, to stretch it out for another, for another year from there. Um, so a year and a half after the first investment, we, uh, We'd finished building version three, which solved some of those problems. And we also had customer contracts in place at that point and ended up getting a much bigger shed. I moved down to Shepparton where the farms are and uh, went and lived down there, uh, which also helped. Yeah, then we raised our, our second round, which was 600,000 Australian. Like that really took us to the, to the next level last year. I, I want to talk about that, but uh, what year was it that you started version one, the shelving unit? Shelving <laughs> unit was 2019, uh, mid, late 2019. And then you said, even though version two didn't really work out so great, uh, you still had customer contracts. So how did you get those customer contracts? Yeah, well, we, we just charged by the bin for, for fruit pickings, uh, for the fruit that we've picked. So I, I think we we're pretty clear with the growers, like, we're going to try and build this. We expect to pick, you know, maybe 10 bins this season, which turned out to be a very optimistic uh, guess with, with version two and version three. And they, they put a little deposit down, a $1,000 deposit, which was... Big for us. We didn't spend it, obviously. It's still sitting there. 
but small for, for a major sort of multi-million dollar fruit operation. And then they just agreed to, to pay for whatever fruit we could pick. So they kind of want it, want it to happen. So they mark out a little section of the orchard for us to, to go and try on. And uh, we didn't manage to actually pick any, any useful bins for them. Actually, haven't, still, still haven't picked a, a useful amount of uh, fruit for them. But uh, because we're, we're doing it by the bin and we're not getting in their way too much, and they, you know, they're interested in making robotic fruit picking happen, you know, we're just like, okay, it didn't work this year. We'd love to, to come back and, and try again next year. Just pay us the same rate you pay people for, for picking and we'll be back and, and try again when the next season starts. And, you know, they've been really, uh, really good with that, really receptive and very supportive. Yeah. That's cool. Let's talk more about the unit itself in, in this, in version six now that you're getting ready to take to try to pick commercially. Maybe just kind of explain it to someone who ha- who hasn't seen it. I, I have seen the video, but for, for the sake of the listener, kind of explain uh, the most recent version. Yeah, yeah. So it's a machine which is sort of like a, a giant triangle. On the hypotenuse of that triangle, you've got a few arms placed along it at an increasing height. The arms facing into the tree, and they've each got a camera and their own compute on them. And then they use that camera and compute to find the fruit on the tree. They assess if it's ripe, uh, if it's able to be picked, and do the calculations to, to, to work out how to move towards it. Then they, they reach into the tree, and we use a suction cup to suck onto the fruit and twist it off the tree, twist and lift. And then the arm places it down on a, on a conveyor belt, which goes the full length of that hypotenuse past all of the arms and into a, a fruit bin at the end of the robot. It's trying to be as simple as it possibly can be and still do the task. Uh, so we've got four arms up the length of the side, all four are the same. The reason we have four is so that it can reach the full full height of the tree, you know, with, with a, a simpler arm that doesn't need to go. Each arm doesn't need to do the full full reach because we've got four. So that was, a, you know, it took us a surprisingly long time to, to think of that. <laughs> and the whole thing sits on its own own base, sort of just like a car base kind of thing, which drives it around through the orchard. Uh, it's fully electric. and um, yeah, it carries the bin on the end on a kind of forklift-like uh, system, which uh, lowers as the bin fills, and then it just drives to the end of the row and places the full bin down for inspection from the grower. And how does it compare with the speed of one human picker uh, at, at this iteration? Yeah, so right now it's slower, but it's slower, at least we hope, we think, because of the the software not being very well optimized yet. I'm not sure if we're still doing, but at least on the most recent previous version, we had sort of silly, silly things that are easy to fix, but they're just a, a consequence of, uh, you know, not optimizing it, like taking the picture and then waiting while the computer goes through and does the calculations and then moving to pick the fruit. That adds like three seconds onto the pick time. Uh, but what you should do is just do the pick while you calculate the picture for the following pick. You know, you can do them in parallel. You know what I mean? It can be moving to do the previous pick while it does the next pick's calculations. So stuff like that is, is, is making the robot slow at the moment. Hardware is designed to pick a piece of fruit aiming for about, you know, less than a second per piece of fruit across the whole robot because it can work 24-7. It's about the equivalent of replacing maybe three human pickers, three or four human pickers. But the actual speed we're getting right now is, is much slower, like order of magnitude slower even though the hardware is designed to go that fast uh, because we, we haven't optimized for speed yet. We've been working on just making sure it can do so reliably and without, uh, without breaking anything. Right. And, and when it, when you do have that all optimized, um, 
how often do you do you anticipate a grower would need to change out the the battery since it's all electric and assuming it want, he you know he or she wants it to go twenty four seven? Oh yeah yeah yeah. So um, uh, sorry when I I might have uh, misled you by saying it's all electric. Like we use electric motors for everything, and there's a battery on it, but the battery's charged like a hybrid. It's got a a, a generator on the machine which charges the, the the battery, which needs to be refueled each day. But because we deal with the operations of the machines, we just charge the grow by the bin. We intend to have our technicians do a loop around once a day to visit all the machines, do any maintenance we need to, brush the leaves off, fill up the generator, uh, oil anything that needs to be oiled, and then uh, come back the next day. We'll be using the generator system for, for a little while, like generator charging a battery which runs the, uh, runs the electric motors. Eventually, we'll probably switch to a pure, like pure battery run thing, but we need to have some way of uh, having the robot drive back and plug itself in for that to make sense because otherwise you're spending uh, too long or it's too heavy to change a battery that's that's big enough like that and you have to change them multiple times a day because of how, how much power it uses so probably in a couple of years we'll have the drive back and uh, and plug-in model but for now it's the uh, refuel the generator once a day right and it makes a lot of sense the way you're doing the business model now which is you know, you, you don't put any risk on the grower of the machine not working because if it doesn't work, you don't pick the fruit, they don't pay for it. Uh, do you anticipate that being the business model going forward, even when you've kind of proven out the technology or will, will it shift to more of a, you know, like traditional farm equipment type model? Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll keep the, uh, the, the per bin model long term. That's the current plan. The reason being that uh, we want to keep upgrading these, the, these machines like all the time even as we, we mature and make it commercial, you know, it's like maybe cars in the 20s. They're, they're going to keep changing. The cars in 1920 are very different from the ones in 1930, even if they stabilized after that. So I think us owning and operating the machines and at the end of the season, bringing them back to, to our shed and upgrading them for the next season with whatever things we've, we've come up with to improve them is the, the, the better way to go about it. We also have continuous software upgrades uh, going on the machines and it helps if the whole fleet has the same software and the same hardware, or at least close to the same hardware. And because people don't necessarily, like each grower doesn't necessarily pick all of the fruit that we will be able to long-term. So if we're starting with apples and, and stone fruit now, that should expand over time to oranges, other types of stone fruit, which we're not doing uh, yet, thinning, pruning. We want to be able to move the machines out uh, about to where, they're, where they can be used year-round, which uh, is trickier for an individual grower to to do plus operating them is, is always going to be a little bit of a, a a thing so if we go from having one operator looking after a couple of machines which is what we're looking at in the in the nearish term uh, as the machines get more reliable you might need one operator looking after 20 30 i don't know how how many machines but if one grower doesn't have 20 or 30 machines then they still need someone on call looking at them just in case they get stuck or have other trouble that they need to call back to base to, to say Hey, take remote control of me. I'm, I don't know what this thing in front of me is. So it makes sense for us to look after the whole fleet for the region, especially as the fleet grows bigger and the, uh, the robots get more and more autonomous and need less, less oversight, just so that they all do still have oversight, but you don't have too many people looking after the machines. Those are some of the reasons off the, off the top of my head. But um, yeah, we'll keep the bin model long term. Yeah. And, and over the years, I mean, there's been other companies, as as you mentioned, that that have kind of tried to tackle this problem in similar ways. You know, some are still working on it. Others have failed. How have those failures kind of impacted the way you're approaching things to try to make sure that, you know, you don't 
end up the same way? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, good question. Um, well, we did we did do a bit of a dive into into the previous uh, uh, attempts and you know chatted with people and tried to learn as much as we can. Big thing I think we're we're trying to do differently is we're we're really like almost brutal about keeping the the costs of the machines down and iterating on them as quickly as we can uh, for as low cost as as we can. Like for the amount of uh, of money that we've raised, we've been able to build and go through. Well, we've built five and we're going into to six machines for. You know, we haven't spent all, all the money yet, so it's about about seven hundred raised total plus a little bit more from grants. We haven't spent it all yet, but we've still been able to do many iterations on the machine, and we're really, really brutal about making the machine as simple and low cost as it can be, and still solve the the problem of of fruit picking. You know, we don't want something that's, you know, the traditional way in agriculture to do it is you expect a piece of equipment to replace like an entire crew of uh, of people. Like if you have like a combine harvester that replaces, you know, dozens and dozens of people and you have one person driving it and it's mechanized. And so that intuition, I think, doesn't actually work very well in this case. We want really small, low cost machines and lots of them, uh, which might only will replace a small number of people, uh, one, two, three, four people. And then because the machines are, are lower cost and cheaper, we can get to market sooner if a machine breaks down, it doesn't ruin the entire harvest because you have other machines or other people working alongside it. Uh, you can iterate them faster because the machines are, are low cost. So it's okay if you, you know, turns out the technology in one machine didn't work great. We'll just move on to the next one. That high iteration rate enabled by the low cost really solves a lot of, a lot of problems. We're also really focused on actually solving the, the commercial problems. I don't know if specifically in apple picking, but there's a lot of research projects where people do stuff because it's you know kind of cool or they're looking for more like to do novel things for the sake of doing novel things like universities which is great and that's like its own thing that that sort of scientific and engineering research but um we're not trying to be novel for the sake of being novel we're, we're like i i live on the farm with the fruit pickers and we build the robot on the farm and we're really just trying to get it to to pick fruit with whatever way that it turns out is the best way to, to pick fruit so having that really tight coupling to the orchards, I think, helps us not spend a long time going down, uh, going down research directions, which are, might be kind of fun and might come up with cool new, cool new technologies, but which aren't tightly coupled to the actual problem that we're trying to solve. And then the other thing is that I actually think it's just easier today to solve this problem than it was for people in the past. For the, the reason we talked about before, the AI is much easier now than it was in the past. It was actually just impossible more than 10 years ago. The demand has gone up because the price of labor has gone up, which means the benchmark the machine has to hit is lower than what it was in the, in the past. Orchards have gotten easier to pick from. They're growing fruit on nice flat 2D trellis, which makes it a much easier task for the machine. We 3D print stuff. We order stuff online, which you know is easier and easier to get, get parts like that. We've got internet access to the machine. There's a lot of outside things which have nothing to do with what we're doing differently to projects in the past, but which just makes it much easier today to actually solve this. So a combination of those three things, I think, has really uh, put us in a good position to make autonomous harvesting happen. Well, what what do the farm laborers you interact with think of this? Um, do they see this as a as a threat to what they do, as a way to improve what they do? Just kind of what uh, sort of candid feedback do you receive from them? Yeah, um, it doesn't seem to be a big deal, at least for the for the fruit pickers that I I live with in Shepparton. A lot of people doing fruit picking, you know, don't actually really want to be doing fruit picking. In Australia, at least, they, a lot of people are doing it 
not for money, but for the visa, because there's a bunch of government incentives to get people out onto orchards picking fruit. So like, okay, if you if you go and pick fruit for six months, then you can stay in Australia for however long. I don't know what the exact rules are. But people are doing it because the there's such a high demand for this. No one in the country is actually doing the work. So the government's got all sorts of incentives other than just direct monetary ones trying to get people to, to go out and pick fruit, uh, which they, you know, in an ideal world, this hard, hot, difficult, low-paying work isn't really what, you know, people want to be doing day to day. The the pickers I live with don't, you know, well, <laughs> I'm friends with some of them. They come and see the robot. There's no, no issues there. And yeah, there's actually also just real shortages. So even scaling up as fast as we could, it'll be a, a, still a couple of years while machines are working alongside people um, and there's still just as many people because they haven't been able to get enough people in the last uh, last couple of years. The fruit's been been sitting on the trees and getting picked late and going to juice or, or just falling to the ground and rotting. So, yeah, definitely no, no issues with people feeling, uh, feeling bad about the machines coming. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what has been the biggest technical challenge? And, and I'm curious, is it what you would have thought the biggest technical challenge would be when you started? Yeah. I thought the thing that had been holding back people from automating fruit picking was the AI, which I think is still like true historically. Like the reason this wasn't done 10 or 20 years ago is because computers couldn't find and assess fruit outdoors under sort of varying light conditions and, and all of that. And robots weren't smart enough to, to do that 10 years ago. I still think that was historically the reason why it's been, been hard. But today the AI is like easy. It's like the easiest part, you know? We went from, we we're building our web models in, in 2019. Now there's like open source off the shelf ones, which we just fine tune. AI is really, really advanced now. It doesn't take a long time for us to, to get it fine-tuned on, on our data to, to find the fruit uh, and assess it. The really hard thing is, especially the hardware that gets the fruit off the tree without damaging it, has been, has been pretty tricky. Because you need to do so in a way that's you know, really cheap, uh, really durable, doesn't uh, break down in the sort of dust and heat and cold and mildew and moisture. You get sort of weird things happen, happening like... Uh, uh, the sprays from from chemicals eating into stuff sometimes, or you know, uh, the the juice on the fruit making stuff sticky and nasty, and sort of building up. You need to clear that off so it doesn't cause any problems either for the equipment, or you know, you don't want nice fruit uh, touching stuff like that. So it's the actual hardware has been has been the tricky bit to get right, and that's taken a lot of a lot of iterations to to get something which even works as well as it does, which isn't yet uh, at the commercial level, but hopefully will be within the within the six months. Yeah, lots of hardware innovation. <laughs> that, that's been, <laughs> that's been uh, uh, very tricky. All right. Well, thank you so much to Hunter J for being on the podcast today. Definitely go take a look at their robot and learn more about what they're doing over at their website, which is riperobotics.com. They also have some YouTube videos that I recommend as well. Really do appreciate their approach to trying to succeed in this part of the industry through low cost, rapid iteration, and making it easy for the customer to want them to try their innovation on their farm. Super cool. Well, Hunter's story speaks to something that Nebraska farmer Jesse Pella emphasizes, which is that farming is a business and all technology needs to offer substantial returns on investment and on time. And that's why Jesse gave Source from Sound Agriculture a try this past year and was kind enough to come on the podcast today to tell me about his experiences with the product. It's got to pay. 
everything's got to pay. This is a big business. It's, it's a huge business. It just used to be about getting the crop in, feeding the cattle and that kind of thing. But there's so much money involved now that you've got to know what what works as far as in the pocketbook. And if you can apply it to your whole farm and get that return, everything's about return. You got to know what you're doing as far as what products you're putting in on your fields and if it's costing you or not. Right. And I, I got to think a lot of that has to be the fact that, like you said, it's it's a big business. There's a lot of money involved, but also margins generally are pretty slim. Now, for you, you know, when, when did you first hear of this source product from SoundAg? When did that first come on your radar? Um, It probably was like two or three years ago. I ran across it. I don't know if it was a magazine or online or somewhere. I'm always just out searching for things, but I ran across it, looked into it. The way it was explained when I looked into it, it was kind of like, yeah, maybe kind of sounded a little too good to be true. Then I found out someone I know was an agronomist for him. And he's like, hey, you want to just try the product? Let you know, we'll give it a shot. I was like, absolutely. I, I love to try new things to see what actually works. So gave it a shot and saw some pretty good returns. And w- when was that? Which year was that that you gave it a shot? This last year was the first year I've used it. Oh, okay. Yep. Kind of walk us through kind of some of the details of, of what you did. You know, uh, on what size of acreage did you use it on? Was it just like a strip trial or kind of uh, what did you see? Uh, I ran it on about, let's see, maybe 250, 300 acres, corn and beans. I guess the best context would be to kind of explain our year. Um, I don't know if you know, but most of Nebraska was super dry. We're in a pretty good drought. Uh, I think we are like 13 inches below normal. So the data is a little skewed in that regard. But the things I saw of as far as like plant health was phenomenal. It's That was one of the things I was not anticipating that it helped with. Like I even went with some, like I didn't put on any fungicides or anything like that just because it was so the, the plant health was so good. Um, and we had a lot of disease around. And then like on the bean side around here, the beans were like BBs just because we just didn't have any moisture late. <laughs> and dad, I have my dad took a uh, one load into a local elevator here and uh, the guys were in line just looking whenever we we're unloading. There's a pretty good line. And they were all commenting about how our beans look normal because everybody's was just BBs. And the only difference was, is we put the source in um, compared to everybody else. And we had the actual normal looking beans and talking to them like our yield was way better than, than everybody else around. And then with, with the checks we had, the yield was significantly better for us. Right. That's cool. And, and so uh, how do you think you're going to kind of take that first year experience and apply it to next year? What's the next step here? Um, I already ordered enough to cover probably 75% of my acres this next year. From what I've seen from it for just off the first year, uh, I want to go a little bit bigger and do more trials with it, but cover more acres. Good for you. What was the process like of kind of implementing it into your normal workflow? I mean, are you just including it with a, a foliar spray you were already planning on doing? Yeah, we tried both. We went with just your post emergent herbicide. It's a super low use rate product. 
So it's compared to anything else I've ever used. It's amazing in that regard. Uh, a little bit goes a long ways with it. You don't have to throw in 15 jugs at a time. I mean, it's, it's just a little measurement out. Uh, and then we also went and just did a standalone. We did a couple like two passes because you do like at your post or you can go later on the season. Um, we did both. Uh, we didn't quite, I, we ran out of water, so I'm not quite sure how well that, as far as the yield data goes there. Uh, we're going to try some more of that next year. But it's an amazing, easy product to use. And what they said, they're changing the formula in it, and it should be even easier this next year, they said. So uh, looking forward to using it again. Cool. Well, yeah, Jesse, anything else we should make sure we get out there about your experiences with sound, either key learnings, um, things you wish you would have known beforehand, or just general sort of takeaways? From what I've experienced, they've been a really good company to work with. They have bent over backwards to help me and even any neighbors or anybody around me that has wanted to give it a shot. I have not found any problems with it. It's one of those things that just give it a shot. Just try it on a small acres. They got a lot of programs that if they can pretty much pay for it if you really want. They can get you insurance for it. So in that regard, that always hooked me as far as just giving it a shot. If they are guaranteeing you pretty much um, this is going to help, it's, it was a no-brainer for me. All right. Well, big thank you to Jesse Pella for sharing those experiences. And thank you to SoundAg for being our quarterly presenting sponsor this quarter. Uh, if you're listening and you know of a company or organization that would be a good fit to sponsor this podcast, I still do have, I think, two quarters available for 2023. Feel free to reach out to me, Tim at aggrad.com. Sorry if the audio on this episode is a little bit different. I'm having to record some of this narration on the road. So apologize for the extra plosives and the odd sound if it sounds a little different from normal but anyway thank you so much for your time and your attention i don't take it lightly i'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation